Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's uh, great to be back again today. I trust that your week has been fabulous. I love the sun. I love the rain. I love the thunder. Love a little bit of it all. And uh, I also love the fact that last week we announced our new children's ministry pastor, uh, Andre Vanderstoop. And I trust that you will take some time, maybe through social media or if he's calling your house, to get to know him, his wife, Nicole, and welcome them to our community here at Seoul. So we are so excited to have them on board. I hope you are too. And uh, yeah, just keep it there. Andre and Nicole, if you can't say Vanderstoop, that's okay. Andre and Nicole, that's all that matters. And today, uh, we sort of continue our walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want to give you just a little refresh, and then we'll jump right into where we're at. Um, Corinth was a very important and wealthy Greek city. Paul spent about 18 months there <clears throat> on his second missionary journey. Obviously, while he was there, he established the church. Um, Acts chapter 18 gives us all the details uh, during that time. And then Paul, after those 18 months, Paul leaves and he goes to visit Ephesus and Jerusalem and Antioch and Galatia. Uh, but what we do know, after he left Corinth, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. Now, uh, that letter has been lost to us, but we know that it was written. And what we find now is Paul is writing another letter, uh, which we call 1 Corinthians, in response to two things. The first was a report by the people in Corinth about the problems in the Corinthian church. And uh, he addresses those problems between chapters 1 and 6. And then from chapter 7 onwards, Paul begins to address all the different questions that the Corinthians had. So here you have these believers and they have all these questions. Things are going on around them and in culture, and this is what he's addressing. Now, the last few weeks, we've been uh, in chapter 7 where Paul was answering questions that had to deal with divorce and marriage and singles and, um, you know, if an individual, if they should get a divorce, if they become a Christian and their spouse doesn't believe. Um, he talked about our identity. Is it okay for widows to remarry? There's a lot of messy stuff, a lot of personal stuff, a lot of interactive stuff. Um, but now we find ourselves in chapter 8. And Paul begins to answer another question that has to do with a problem that is actually very common in our Christian lives today. Can Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? That's the question, you know. If I was to rephrase it, how much should I let other people's views control my actions? And I think when you hear it put that way, you recognize immediately that this is a problem that every Christian faces. And, you know, some differ widely as to whether certain activities in our daily lives are right and wrong, or wrong, actually. And the question comes down to is, how much should I adjust my actions accordingly? It's a very practical uh, life lesson today to everybody in the church. The question they ask Paul is, is not uh, really, when you think about it, is not really a problem that we wrestle with today. You know, do any of you struggle with, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols this week? My guess, probably not. Um, now, there are still places in the world where people might. Uh, if the people were working as a teacher or a preacher or a missionary on a mission field, that, that could still be a problem. Um, and so maybe you're sitting there today and you're kind of scratching your head and you're going to wonder how this question has any relevance for us today. But it's actually incredibly relevant as it speaks to the issue of Christian freedom or Christian liberty. 
Now, I grew up in a traditional and very conservative Christian family. Um, I think I actually face this issue all the time in one way or another. I often face this verse used one way or another. And so, you know, growing up, it was always asked, is it right for Christians to watch TV? Was it right for us to go to movies or, you know, watch movies on TV that had cussing, violence, nudity, crude joking? You know, should a believer drink alcohol? uh, Should they smoke? Uh, Is it okay for a believer to play uh, the lottery or to gamble? Or, you know, to what extent can a Christian get involved in politics? Should, you know, is it okay to get tattoos or piercings? And, uh, you know, is it, uh, should you use birth control? Or does one allow their kids to go trick-or-treating? The, the list can go on and on and on. And some of you are probably thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not. Very real questions, especially in my world growing up in the, in the uh, let's see, I've got to figure out how old, like 70s and 80s, like something. And yet, I also find, even today, How do you feel towards people who have strong convictions uh, against some of the things that maybe I just listed? Let's say you have a family tradition of playing Texas Hold'em with your family on an annual camping trip, camping getaway weekend, and you just see it as innocent fun. How do you respond to the wife of your uncle who's battled gambling addiction? And she asked that maybe all of you, the family, would skip that particular family tradition this year. You know, the same question can be asked regarding social drinking, watching R-rated movies. And all these come down to how do you respond to a Christian brother or sister who has very different convictions than you? So let's talk about brews and barbecues, can we? actually what I called this message. Brews and barbecues. And I want to uh, read our text and then I'll comment. So here we go. Open up uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in at uh, sorry eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. 
When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So, here it is. In Corinth, the best place to buy a good steak was right next to the temple, the idol's temple. Now, much of the meat available for human consumption had been sacrificed to idols. That's just the way the economy went. And so typically, part of the meat was burnt on the altar. Part of that meat was reserved for the priests. Part was consumed by the people making the offering or the sacrifice. And then the rest was available for sale. Now, of the meat that was available to be purchased, some would actually be served in a restaurant style uh, in, in temples. And, and these were the fancier restaurants in, in the ancient world. Several temples were excavated in Corinth. They have been found to have these so-called dining rooms where people could come and hold you know, parties of sorts and feast. Now, almost certainly, these meals were thought to be necessary by some of the upwardly mobile in the church as a means of networking, cultivating business contacts and the like, no different than what we do today. And it's very likely that more of those Christians who participated in these temple meals were the wealthier members of the church because the fact is the poor people in the Roman world could not afford to eat much meat. And that might have actually added to their resentment of the Christians who could attend and eat in the temples and, you know, deepen the sense of the division in the church. Because what would happen then, the rest of the meat that was left over would then be sold in the meat markets throughout the city. And there, the prices were now even higher. So while it was clear that the meat served in the temples had been sacrificed to idols, though, it's now more difficult often impossible to determine the origin of the meat for sale in the meat markets. You track along with what I'm going here. And so there were two dimensions to the problem for the Corinthian Christians. One was <clears throat> whether it was permissible for them to eat meat served within the temple restaurants. The other was whether it was permissible to purchase meat that had been sacrificed to the idols and then bring it home and eat it there. So eating meat within the temple areas could be a particular problem because new Christians would see more mature Christians eating meat at a temple. They would come to a conclusion that these mature Christians were engaging in idol worship, even though maybe they weren't, obviously. Eating meat at home then, even though it might be sacrificed to idols, would be less likely to be interpreted that way. But for some people, it was still an issue. And so eating meat sacrificed to idols was also a problem in Rome. As a matter of fact, Paul deals with it in his letter to the Romans in chapters 14 and 15. And Paul's response to the Romans is very similar to his response in 1 Corinthians. He emphasized that Christians should welcome each other, but they should abstain from judging each other. I'll pause on that for a little bit. Even though they may have differing opinions. I'll pause on that again. He also emphasized that no man put a stumbling block in his brother's or sister's way. He said that there is nothing intrinsically wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols, but he admonished the Romans. And he said this in, in chapter 14, verse 20. He said, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. The work of God being the faith of weaker Christians. 
While the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols might seem irrelevant today, what Paul has to say about sensitivity to the feelings of Christian's brother, Christian brothers and sisters is actually highly relevant. There is no surprise that the Corinthians were divided on the issue. No surprise. One group believed actually that spirits of pagan gods were absorbed into the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. Okay? And other Christians may be possessed by demons if they ate it. Some people held that view. Rightly or wrongly, it doesn't matter. Some people held that view. Others who had formerly been involved in pagan worship, you know, maybe they didn't believe you'd be possessed, but they still didn't want anything that reminded them of their lives before encountering Christ. There was a third group too. The third group understood that an idol was just a block of wood or stone, that it had no power, and therefore it couldn't contaminate the meat that had been sacrificed to it. And of these three opinions, Paul undoubtedly belonged to the third group. He was a Jew, remember. He didn't have a pagan past to remind him uh, of, you know, if he ate idolized meat, so to speak. And as a worshiper of the one true God, he knew that an idol is nothing. So he actually, if you think about it, he could have pressed the point and told the people who had a problem with eating meat sacrificed to the idols, hey, look, just get over yourselves, people. And he might have even argued that they should eat meat as a sign to the world that the pagan gods had no power over believers. But instead, Paul introduces a very important principle before he ever deals with the topic. He calls those who are mature, he calls the strong Christians who understand that idols do not represent real gods, those who understood that the meat that was sacrificed to the idols has no religious significance, he actually talks to these people and asks them to defer to those who are weaker in the faith. So what are some real-life situations which might apply today? Actually, we're not as far removed from this very issue as we might think. Because I know some Christians who uh, will not have a Christmas tree because the custom originated with the pagans in northern Germany who decorated trees at the winter solstice. There are other Christians who will not use Easter eggs because that originated with the pagan spring festivals when the egg, you know, the symbol of fertility, was offered to the pagan goddess. I like pointing out to these people who sort of get hung up, who, who sort of get troubled by these kinds of things, that if they're going to be consistent, they ought to not use the names of the days of the week either because they're actually named after pagan gods. There's Sunday, there's Monday, right? There's Thor's day. <laughs> Thor was the god of war, right? There was Woden's day, you know. All these are pagan names. In fact, the names of the months are pagan names. January is named after the Roman god Jan Janus, who, who is a two-faced god. and he, he looked backward to the old year. He looked forward to the new year. March was uh, addressed and dedicated to Mars, the god of war. And you can go through many of these common terms and, and see in them pagan origination. But now some of these are no longer a problem to us, are they not? But you can see how a principle can be very difficult for some people to settle. Now, a topic that historically comes up with this passage has to do with alcohol. Now, context is a little off in that alcohol is not sacrificed to idols. 
But the principle is the same. A person who is strong, that isn't likely to get drunk, uh, could say I'm free to drink whenever and wherever I choose because I can handle it. I'm not going to get drunk. I won't lose control. I won't drive while I'm impaired. Well, that might be very true in the presence of one who is weak. Let's say an alcoholic or somebody who might be disposed to be an alcoholic. The stronger person needs to consider the potential consequences of his or her behavior on that weaker person. And so if, if the stronger person insists on drinking alcohol in the presence of an alcoholic, then their behavior might tempt that alcoholic to fall off the wagon, to take one drink, which would lead to many different drinks. And in such a case, Paul would call the stronger person to consider the vulnerability of the weaker person and to defer to the weaker person's sensibilities. It's the principle of love for the other person that trumps the principle of our own personal freedom that comes in our faith, faith with Jesus. See, there are also Christians who feel strongly that consumption of any alcoholic beverages is inconsistent with being a Christian. Like if they were seeing a person drinking alcohol, they would actually come to the conclusion that that person is either not a Christian or they are a Christian engaging in sinful behavior. Let me just say this in a nutshell because I'm not going to stand on this for a while. To call drinking alcohol a sin is holding to intellectual dishonesty. What does that mean? Calling something a sin that isn't and trying to attribute to it that it's in the Bible is intellectual dishonesty. And I've addressed this in many other life lessons and specifically in Genesis chapter 9. And I will simply state that the Bible says no such thing. However, the Bible does bring to our attention the negative effects of alcohol and warns one has to be careful in consumption. And the Bible does say that drunkenness is a sin. Now, there are other situations where the same principle uh, would apply. Maybe careless words might you know, create a break in a relationship or might cause other problems. We might believe that, you know, our freedom of speech, right? Freedom of speech says, permits me to say whatever we feel like saying. It's called Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, right? But James says this, If anyone among you thinks himself to be religious while he doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this man's religion is worthless. And I guess the same argument can be applied to whether or not to wear a mask during the time of COVID. Ooh. See, it's difficult to generalize because the application of Paul's principle here of love for the weaker person is so dependent on the immediate situation. You know, who might be watching and how our behavior might affect that person spiritually. That's what we're talking about. And in any event, applying Paul's principle of love requires that we all have to be alert. We have to be sensitive to those who might be led astray because of our behavior. I'm reminded of the lengths to which Sharon and I, we went to protect our kids when they were young. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You'd insert those little plugs into the electrical outlet so your kids weren't put, putting their fingers or other things into them, right? You wanted to protect them from electrical shocks. You know, we would t carefully test the temperature of the bath water before placing them into the tub. Why? Because you didn't want them to get burned. We made sure that they didn't have access 
to uh, small objects on which they might choke, right? That's what parents do. You know, you fenced our, or at least we did, we would fence off our yard. We would give them a safe place to play. And we kept sharp knives where they couldn't reach them. Except for Jesse. We made a mistake there. You know, what kind of parent lets their kid toss a filleting knife and catch it with their thigh, right? I don't know. But basically, being a good parent means that we're always trying our best to be alert. And Paul calls us as believers to that same type of sensitivity to other people, both children and adults. Anyone who might misunderstand our actions, our language, our behavior, anyone who might be tempted to emulate our behavior in ways that might do them harm. Anyone whose faith might be damaged by seeing us do things that they might believe to be questionable morally. Isn't that interesting? And so Paul uh, writes to the Corinthians and he quotes, it's, we, possess no, we all possess knowledge. And what he's doing is he's quoting the Corinthian Christians that had apparently said this in their letter to him. And the implication is that they, they understand that idols are not real gods. Therefore, food sacrifice to idols has no religious significance and they should be able to eat meat that has been sacrificed to these idols. And we have to remember that Corinth is a Greek city. The Greeks prized themselves on their wisdom, on their knowledge, on their sophistication. And when they say that we all have knowledge, they aren't talking about everybody. They're talking about themselves. And knowledge is a great gift. And these Corinthian Christians are more knowledgeable than most, but they have become prideful concerning their knowledge. And, and later in this letter, Paul will address their love of knowledge in chapter 13 when he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, I am nothing. So knowledge without love tends towards arrogance. Spiritual gifts such as knowledge need to be used in service to others. If the Corinthians uh, would do that, they would uh, both give and receive blessings. If they won't, their knowledge is actually more like, is, is likely to do more harm than good. A little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing. Paul goes on to respond to the statement if, of, you know, we, we all possess knowledge, and he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. While knowledge in the service of others is actually good, people who could use their knowledge to establish their superiority over other people, which is not good, cannot expect to experience a good result. You ever been in a room like that where somebody is Mr. Know-it-all, Mrs. Know-it-all, and maybe they just have a little bit of information or maybe they have a lot, but what they do is it becomes overbearing on us. And they're highly likely to get a, an inflated opinion of themselves and that does not help and that does not do anything to help anybody else. As a matter of fact, this little phrase that Paul uses is the fifth time he uses the word in the letter. Um, it's sometimes translated puffed up, other times it's translated arrogant. And Paul obviously thinks that being puffed up, being inflated with pride is a problem for these folks. They're so proud of their knowledge. They got it all together. And instead of building up their brothers and sisters with their knowledge, they're tearing people down. 
Their knowledge has led to like an elitism, not a brotherhood, not a sisterhood. It led to pride, not to humble, self-sacrificial service of, you know, towards their brothers and sisters that exemplified Jesus himself, what Paul has taught them, but just their pride. They're full of pride. And, and while knowledge puffs up, Paul responds real quickly and he says, but love builds up. Love edifies. Love blesses. Blesses both the one who loves and the one who is loved. Does it not when you think about it that way? And given the choice between knowledge and love, we would be far better off, if you think about it, to choose love. If we are blessed with knowledge, then you need to mix it liberally with love before putting it on display with other people. And Paul writes, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. What he's talking about here is presumptuous knowledge, arrogant knowledge, conceited knowledge. He's saying that a person who presumes to have knowledge isn't likely to have it, at least not to the extent that they actually need it. Again, I say it, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. People who assume that they know the facts makes them unwilling to learn anything further. You ever have a conversation with somebody like that? You know, this bit of knowledge, therefore, becomes actually a barrier to true knowledge. Paul then says, but whosoever loves God is known by God. And this seems like an odd verse after saying that a person who thinks he knows everything probably doesn't. We sort of would almost expect Paul to say that, you know, the wise person is the one who knows God or the truly wise person is the one who loves God. But that isn't what what he says. Instead, he says, if anybody loves God, the same is known by him. You know, I think you can all agree Christian people can be mean, they can be bitter, and unloving towards one another, unfortunately. And often the selfish disregard for others and their opinions, it stems from our sense that we know more than they do. Right? And so what is to be the purest brother and sisterhood in the world? That is the church. Ends up being a society of squabblers, when you think of it, who are looking uh, with daggers at one another across the auditorium. And Paul says, look at church, don't have anything to do with that. Knowledge is not the issue. Love is the issue. And the key to Christian life isn't knowing all the answers. The key to Christian life is loving God. And Paul promises that the person who loves God will be known by God. And it is ever so much more important to be known by God than to possess knowledge. Because knowledge eventually does come to an end, but God is eternal, and so is the one who is known by God. Paul concludes this chapter with uh, the practical application of how we're to exercise and restrain the freedom that we have in Christ. He doesn't argue that believers are, are not free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And notice that he isn't talking about our freedom offending the, a weaker brother or sister. The issue is whether exercising our freedom causes a weaker brother or sister to sin. It isn't about someone thinking less of you because of what they see you doing. It's about someone thinking less of Jesus because they follow our example. Sit on that for a moment. Paul understands human behavior because he has learned it from the Scriptures. He knows that when you are urging somebody to think about someone else instead of himself, it's actually very difficult to get them to do so. 
you know, you can shake your finger at people, you can threaten them, you can warn them, and you can exhort them all you like, but it's not going to get anybody to do something. What will? By beginning to recognize how much God has loved us. And that is what will do it. Love has to come first. And if you love God, you are responding to the love of God for you. You get it. That is the appeal of Paul everywhere. Don't try to force yourself to think of somebody else. Look back to what God has already done for you. Think of the thousand times a day he has manifested his love, his concern, and faithfulness for you. And it should begin to make you feel humbly grateful. Because when you do this, then you'll be able to recognize other people and their need to be treated with the same patience as God has treated you. That's an amen or ouch moment, right? Well, then you will then begin to be more understanding to somebody else's point of view, even if you disagree with it. And you will then begin to, uh, you know, be more self-aware. And therefore, the key to carrying out this kind of exhortation is that you learn to love God because he has loved you. That's where it starts. Start thinking about that and you'll begin to see yourself and the other person in a very different light. And you'll see that God has been infinitely patient with you and me and brought you along when you are all mixed up and when you're all arrogant in your attitude and he begins to work in you. He did not wipe us out. He did not ignore what we believed. He patiently led us along and waited for us you can then begin to extend that same grace to somebody else who is maybe struggling where you are now free. And you might be some, like I'm writing this message and some people are always, well, why is it always on me? Why, do, why, why is it all about, you know, why can't they just get over themselves and, you know, you know, realize this is okay and they just need to deal with it? I think there's a couple of reasons for this first. First, it's always the stronger person who has to help the weaker person in life. So whether it's stronger mentally, emotionally, physically, if you want a relationship with somebody who's weaker, you have to help them. This is what we do for our kids. We don't look down on them for not knowing as much and not being as physically strong. We help them because we love them. Secondly, we do this because our model is Jesus. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He laid down everything so that we could have access to him. And so as we follow him, we will also, are we willing to take up our cross, lay down our rights, and love others so that we can build them up? It's not about us. You know, some Christians have weak consciences because they've been saved for only a short period of time and they've not had much opportunity to grow. We need to be very sensitive about that. Kind of like little children in the home. They need to be guarded carefully. Other saints have weak consciences because they don't want to grow. And they ignore their, their Bibles and they ignore accountability and they remain literally in a state of infancy. And I can tell you some seniors who act as Christian babies. Ouch. Yeah, don't get me going. And some believers remain weak because they're afraid of freedom. Isn't that interesting? And they're, they're like a child that's old enough to go to school, but afraid to leave home and have to be taken every day to school. Paul tells us that's the conscience of a weak Christian. Paul says that a conscience of a weak Christian is easily defiled, easily wounded, easily offended. And it's for this reason, 
stronger saints have to defer to the weaker saints to do nothing that would harm them. It might not harm the faith of a mature saint to share in a feast at an idolatrous temple, but it might harm his weaker brother. The way you relate carries great weight. The way you relate carries great weight. So relate in love. I also have to add that a faulty understanding of our secure position in in Jesus can also lead to legalism. Because some people look to proper behavior or they want this rigid rule following as a source of approval from God. And in many situations, even today, where arguments arise over the kind of things that I mentioned earlier, it's not a question about somebody's conscience being weak. It's a question that somebody's prejudices are being irritated. That's very different. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. In my experience, there were many situations where people who were no longer in danger of losing their faith or not growing in the Lord because they, they saw somebody exercise the liberty that they have raised a complaint about it. What has happened is that they're irritated by it. They're annoyed by it. And they maybe try to stop that kind of exercise and they'll quote this verse totally out of context. This is not what Paul's talking about at all. Christian courtesy would demand that we would never flaunt our liberty before anybody who feels strongly about it. If we feel free to take a glass of wine, we would only do so if we felt that there was nobody around the table who would feel strongly against it. Why would you do that? Right? It's only a momentary fleshly indulgence that can easily be passed by if somebody doesn't like that thing. In other words, you could give it up. It's not that big of a deal. But in our prideful society, even in the church, we make it a deal. On the other hand, if there's no question around everybody else around the table, we are free to exercise it. A great danger has been done in the church by trying to accommodate the behavior of Christians to the conscience of the lowest common denominator to the weaker brother in the church. (coughs) This doesn't help the church to grow at all. Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about somebody who's going to be damaged by it. And I think we need to understand that. And so he says, therefore, if food is a cause for my sister or my brother's falling, I, I, I would never eat meat lest I cause him to fall. Paul is very much aware of that. And that is love requires self-control in these areas. Paul gladly gives in. He denies his freedom and he denies his liberty. He says that when it's a case of actually offending somebody, rather than to do that, I'll give up my right gladly. I wish more Christians would do that. And I'm thinking specifically social media. But Paul's talking about what he does in the presence of someone, not what might have happened or be reported some 200 kilometers away that's going to offend some other brother or sister in the Lord who doesn't know, you know this, the context of the situation. That's a totally different situation. Paul is saying, look at where I find myself surrounded by other believers, I need to have a grasp on how I exercise my freedom be it in in what I eat, specifically according to this, or what I drink, right? 
or what comes out of my mouth, what I watch. You hear what I'm saying? This is what Paul is saying. Pastor and theologian A.H. Uh, Ironside, he tells of an incident that took place at a church picnic. You gotta love this. Now, this, this is a good old school uh, commentator. And uh, he said this. He said, one of the members that day was a man who was just converted from Islam. Somebody bought a ba- brought a basket of sandwiches up to the man and asked him if he would like to have some. And he said, well, what kind do you have? And she said, well, uh, I'm afraid all we have left is ham. And he looked at her a little bit puzzled. He says, well, don't you have any beef? And th- she replied, no, they're, they're all gone. He says, well, then I won't have any. Now, it was interesting because the host, knowing that this man is a Christian, turns around and says to him, well, sir, you know, I'm actually quite surprised. You know, don't you know that as a Christian, you're free to eat all the, you know, from all the food restrictions and you can eat pork or whatever you, if you like. And he looked at the individual and said, yes, yes, I know that. I know I'm free to eat pork, but I'm also free not to eat it. See, uh, and he goes on to tell the story. He says that he's still involved with his family back in the Middle East, and he still goes back to visit. And I know that when I go home once a year and I come up to my father's door, the first question he will ask me is, have those infidels taught you to eat the filthy hog meat yet? And I have to say to and and if I say to my father, yes, I will be banished from that home and I'll have no further witness in it. But if I can say, as I've always been able to say, no, Father, no pork has ever pressed past my lips, then I have admitted to the family circle and I'm free to tell them of the joy that I found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am free to eat or I am free not to eat, as is the case may be. I think when you think about this story with that perspective, it sets a whole It sets our problem into perspective. We don't have to have our rights. We're free as believers to give them up at any time, especially when the situation warrants it. And though we have the rights, we also have the right not to exercise them for the sake of love. Listen, there are behaviors in the Bible explicitly condemns. Extramarital sex, murder, theft, so on. I can go on from there. These are not areas in which we get to exercise our freedom in Christ. But the Bible does not address every area on which sincere Christians are divided. In those areas, we have to be repeatedly asking ourselves the question, am I responding with what I know or am I responding with love? Let me go back to one of my earlier examples. You're free to play Texas Hold'em. But would you willingly restrain that freedom if it would lead your uncle with a gambling addiction back into a self-destructive pattern? See, Paul knew he was right about the insignificance of the idols and the fact that there was nothing sinful about eating the meat that was sacrificed to them. But rather than trying to make a point, he wanted to make a difference. He didn't want to lose the right to disciple a weaker believer by leading them into what they perceived as sin. He didn't push his point of view. Instead, he willingly limited his freedom for the sake of weaker brothers and sisters who were still trying to figure out what freedom was all about. Soul Sanctuary. Pay attention to how your behavior is interpreted. Not for the sake of your repetition, but for the sake of the other 
person's spiritual development. Remember to build up with love rather than puff up with your knowledge about what you're free to do. Keep in mind that building up the other person will involve helping them understand their secure position in, all, in the all-sufficient Jesus. Before I pray, maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you a, a place where your witness for Christ needs some help. Just saying. Let's pray. Thank You, dear Father, for the words of wisdom and love that will guide us. Help us to act in love in what we do and not act merely in knowledge alone. We thank You for the knowledge and the truth that sets us free, but also for the love that still restrains us and makes us give consideration to somebody else's welfare and not just our own. May we reflect that love as our Lord Jesus did Himself to everyone, including us. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Soul Sanctuary, go now and live out God's message. Never forget His wonderful mercy and His kindness. Welcome the freedom that is won in truth, but never use your freedom to undermine others. And see that your words, see that your actions are worthy of praise. And may God uphold you. May Jesus Christ free you from all that would harm you. And may the Holy Spirit nourish you in wisdom and faithfulness. Now go in peace and live the church and we'll see you next week.